You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Leonard Perlmutter joins us this hour for a wonderful discussion about his book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, co-authored with Janice Cortez Perlmutter. Their encyclopedic book on meditation, yoga, and health choices represents the American Institute's empowering self-care program for a happy, healthy, and joyful life. Their program is endorsed by longtime friends of 21st Century Radio, such as Bernie Siegel, Larry Dossie, and others like Mehmet Oz and Dean Ornish. Learn the roots and truth about the yogic science of meditation, the use of mantras, yogic postures, diaphragmatic breathing, and more. Thank you for joining us, Leonard. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, truthfully, it is encyclopedic, over some 500-some pages, and it's extraordinary contribution, I think, to the whole field. Why don't we start with a little description of your own teacher, Sri Swami Rama of the Himalayas. Well, uh, Swami Rama... Uh, came to uh, the United States uh, in the uh, early 1970s, uh, went to the Menninger Institute, uh, where he was hooked up to uh, electronic uh, uh, information uh, to uh, test his autonomic nervous system and uh, read out uh, his heart rate and uh, body temperature. And uh, what he was able to do is to uh, slow his uh, heart rate down to uh, practically negligible uh, readings. He could, uh, uh, through uh, his mind, uh, have readouts on, on his palm of two different temperatures an inch apart. And he did it not, not to display uh, uh, gifts of magic, but rather to uh, uh, demonstrate the, the power of the, of the conscious mind over the autonomic nervous system. And that's exactly what yoga science uh, uh, does through the different practices uh, that are thousands of years old. And why is this of benefit to us as humans, to be able to control the autonomic nervous system, or affect it anyway? Well, it just proves that uh, uh, we are the architects of our lives. Uh, We determine our destiny. You know, the, the human body, when it acts, either verbally or physically, uh, brings about a consequence. That, uh, is, uh, that was the basis of Newton's third law of motion for every action. There's an equal and opposite reaction. Uh, but the body is not going to uh, speak, and the body is not going to uh, take an action unless and until uh, there's a thought in the mind, which is, for me, very inspiring. The, the mind moves first and the body follows. And by having control over the thought process, we can determine the thoughts that we think, the words that we speak, and the actions that we take uh, that can lead us to the happiness and the health and the security that we deeply desire. There's been a great deal, I think, of recent confusion because yoga has sort of been commodified and postures are turned into competitive sport, even talking about having it as an Olympic sport. 
But share with our audience the actual purpose historically and in the East of yoga postures and what they do for our body and our minds. And I like it that you call the bridge of yoga. Yes. Uh, the yoga postures, the yoga exercises, uh, are very popular in, in the West today and specifically in the United States. And and the reason is, is very uh, uh, commonsensical, and that is that we have a very physical culture. So, yes, indeed, uh, yoga postures are part of yoga science. Uh, we have a, a physical body. Uh, life is, uh, is dependent on that vehicle for action, and so we want to take care of it. But classical yoga science developed these postures as part of a systematic procedure leading to the culmination of meditation, which is all geared and designed to experience higher states of consciousness. Uh, so in the science of yoga, which is the oldest mind-body medicine uh, in the world and the basis of all world religions, in order to experience this happiness, health, and security, uh, the science of yoga provides a philosophical and a scientific template, if you will, for seeking and discovering the truth. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> we like that one. Uh, you know, you talk in the book, I thought it was rather interesting, you asked this question, who am I? Yes. And that this is an important question and part of yoga science. Share with us a little bit more about this. Well, most people uh, don't really know who uh, who they are. Uh, if you asked a person uh, who you are, you would, uh, mo- you would most often hear people describe their their physical body, uh, you know, uh, I am uh, a white person, I weigh 150 pounds, I, uh, I live in uh, Averill Park, New York, I uh, work as a uh, teacher, uh, but that's not really who we are, uh, that's really an assumed identity and it's always changing, uh, because sometimes uh, I'm happy and sometimes I'm unhappy, sometimes I'm angry and sometimes uh, I'm forgiving. Sometimes I am a teacher, but sometimes I am a student. So without knowing who we are on all grades, levels, and degrees, what happens is the the software of the mind, which primarily uh, uh, is in many respects in conflict with our inner wisdom, uh, motivates not only our thoughts, but our words and our actions, and also the consequences that uh, we experience. So the bridge of yoga is a template to encourage us, us, to encourage us and inspire us to base our outer actions, thoughts, words, and deeds on our own inner intuitive wisdom. And we access that intuitive wisdom by coordinating the functions of the mind. Who knew that there were functions of the mind? I never heard of it uh, before I started this study. But yes, indeed, there are four major functions of the mind. The senses uh, operate under uh, one of the major functions of the mind called the manas. The ego and the unconscious mind comprise the the first three. But the fourth function of the mind is very interesting. That is our conscience. In yoga science, it's referred to as the buddhi. And the conscience uh, has a functioning similar to a mirror. It has a reflective quality. 
And our conscience has the capacity, and this is what separates the human from every other form of animal. The conscience can reflect wisdom from what yoga science refers to as the superconscious portion of the mind. Now, the superconscious portion of the mind lies beyond the conscious, and it lies beyond the unconscious. It's, it's not metaphor. It's not poetry. It's really the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations, where Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies. doesn't mean I'm going to become a songwriter, nor does it mean that you're going to become uh, a physicist. What it does mean is that if we can build and employ a philosophy of life, we call it a bridge of yoga, but you could call it a bridge of Judaism, you could call it a bridge of Christianity, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, any of the Native American cultures. The important thing is that every human being does need a philosophy of life to base outer action on inner wisdom. And if we can use our conscience regularly to determine the thought to think, the word to speak, and the action to take, then we can coordinate the other functions. We can coordinate the senses and the ego and the unconscious mind, which only have limited perspectives to this 360-degree panoramic view that only the conscience has. And that is a game-changer. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. One of the other areas you point out in your discussion of the software of the mind is that our greatest challenge, and Mahatma Gandhi pointed this out, is um, not how we change the world, but the challenge of changing ourselves. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. In order to change ourselves, we have to recognize that, that we have some software in the unconscious mind which is faulty. Uh, when I was a child in grade school, I learned... Uh, that one plus two is three. But to be very honest, I had other teachers at different times who taught me that one plus two is four. And I was so young and so naive and so captivated by this teacher that I believed it. And uh, don't you know that even today, at uh, 71 years of age, I have that, uh, that untruthful formula stored in my unconscious mind, and when I am in a situation where my emotional buttons are pushed, I rely on that untruthful concept, that one plus two is four. And every time I act on it, I hurt myself. That, that is such an essential point, and I'd like not to pass it, because all of us experiencing having our emotions triggered, yes. and as you just pointed out, they're not always in the now. They're actually tapping into a pattern that can be so deeply ingrained, If particularly if we repeat the thought form or repeat the feelings or recite certain things to ourselves that might diminish who we are or diminish someone else. Share with us the, the yogic wisdom about this, how we actually make these unconscious tracks in our mind, but how also we can overcome and alter them. Well, first and foremost, I think that it's helpful to understand that every relationship is a consequence of a previous action, providing each of us a new opportunity to self-examine aspects of the unconscious mind that are not working for us, that are actually in conflict with our inner wisdom. And when we 
serve them in mind, action, and speech, the consequence that develops is pain. So let's just say for the sake of argument, I'm driving down the highway at 55 or 60 miles an hour. And there's a fellow that's coming up on my right-hand side, and he's actually going about 90 miles an hour, and he cuts right in front of me. And because of that, I have to slam on the brake to avoid an accident. And in that process, a little bubble comes forward from my unconscious mind into my conscious mind, and I am aware of anger. What am I going to do with it? If I keep on giving it attention, a cascade of hormones is going to continue to surge, poisoning my internal physiology. So who does the anger hurt? If I repress the anger, I become neurotic, and I experience even more pain, not just poison. So there's another, another way to look at it. Every relationship is coming for our highest and greatest good if we can see it as a means to our liberation. So if, when I am aware of this anger, if I can learn through yogic practices to create a space between stimulus and response, that space between stimulus and response provides me the freedom to redirect my consciousness toward the buddhi, toward the conscience, to determine, hey, am I supposed to act on this uh, anger? Am I supposed to say something? Am I supposed to do something? Am I supposed to continue thinking it? And if my conscience says, no, you're not supposed to be giving it attention, what am I then to do? And the answer is, that whole setup of the of this person cutting me off in traffic is a, the whole thing is designed to have me rendezvous with part of my unconscious mind that is now conscious. Once the unconscious becomes conscious, I can do something with it. Well, what is energy? Excuse me. What is what is anger other than energy? Mm-hmm. And and what do we know about energy? We know that it can't be created. We know that it can't be destroyed, but it can be transformed. I know from my own experience and experimentation in fifth grade science class that ice can be melted into water, and water can be heated into gas. And anger or fear or greed is not bad. It's just a contractive and debilitating form of my creative energy. And instead of serving it and experiencing pain, if I sacrifice it, if I can offer it back to the origin from which it came, that sacrifice becomes the mechanism for transformation. The debilitating, contractive energy can be transformed into a positive healing energy, an expansion of my willpower, and an increase in my creative capability. Once again, you are so beautifully articulate about things that people often run circles around. Um, it shows you've been teaching and practicing your whole life. The Heart and Science of Yoga, the American Meditation Institute's empowering self-care program for happy, healthy, joyful life. Our guest is its author, whom with his wife have written the book, Leonard Perlmutter. And you can learn more at their website, www.americanmeditation.org. Hello, this is Joseph Emmett, author of Buddha's Book of Meditation 
and of the upcoming Finding the Blue Sky, a book about mindfulness and happiness. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Leonard Perlmutter is our guest. His book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, Empowering Self-Care Program for a Happy, Healthy, Joyful Life. It's a 2017 release, and you can learn more at www.americanmeditation.org. The use of repetitive speech or mantras um, is, is a key, and you even go so far as to say the mantra is your leader. Before you would describe that, I just wanted to comment that I loved, Leonard, that you all included that even just reciting the word yes to ourselves over and over is of benefit. Well, that's true. Uh, if we uh, quiet down the mind a bit and, and come into the heart center, uh, the center of the chest, and just listen to the word yes, 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 very quickly, and then analyze our, our emotional reaction to it, versus when you do the same type of experiment, but you listen to no, 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 the yes is uplifting and expansive, where the no is oppressive. And so the key to successful living is always to say yes to yourself, first and foremost. And that way there, you can say to another person, no, without any guilt, because you're always serving yourself. Uh, and mantras are very, very powerful. They're not only our leader, they are our best friend, because the mantra, which is a perfect harmonic, and, and as you said, er, every spiritual and religious tradition has mantras, uh, and they are a perfect harmonic, and it does four things, actually, a mantra. First of all, it generates love. Second, fearlessness. Third, strength. Every time you listen to the mantra in the unconscious mind, love and fearlessness and strength are reinforced. And the fourth thing that the mantra does is it returns to its source of origin. So if you listen to the, to the vibration, and the power of the mantra is the power is in the vibration. It's not in the meaning. Uh, quantum uh, uh, physicists are already explaining to us that the entire universe is not comprised of a uh, 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 zillion uh, uh, individual objects. It's one holistic organism. Everything is interconnected. There is a unicity within the diversity. And the, the mantra returns to its source of origin, and that is the source of all. And when you listen to the mantra, there is a silence before the mantra appears, when the mantra concludes, also the silence appears. So, in effect, the mantra is coming from the silence and it is returning to the silence. And if we can train the mind to be one-pointed instead of multi-pointed, uh, uh, as the culture suggests, but if we can be one-pointed, like a laser, then the mind can follow the mantra into the silence. And the silence is the ocean of peace, bliss, and happiness. It is the ocean of consciousness that is within us, that is us having this human experience. And when that occurs, it is the beginning of the end of fear. Because 
when the mind and the mantra become one and the mantra returns to its origin and we piggyback a ride through the mind, we experience that everything is one. And when there is no other but everything being one, what is there to fear? Whom is there to fear if there's only one? So every relationship, after a while, and your understanding of this practice, every relationship is with yourself. That's why Jesus, speaking as the Christ, says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Why? Not because it's a cool idea, which of course it is, but because on the highest level of consciousness, our neighbor is ourself. Yes, we, we have different bodies, different minds, different personalities, and different habit patterns, but they're all subject to change, death, decay, and decomposition. And yet, at our elemental level, pure consciousness is just one. There's just one consciousness. So if I think, speak, or act in an injurious way towards someone else, somewhere in space and time, that injury comes to me because my relationship is with myself. If I act selflessly somewhere in space and time, that selfless action is going to come back to me. For those who might say, well, I always thought mantras were associated with the Hindu language or you have to chant Om or something that you don't relate to, um, share with those who maybe haven't ever had a mantric practice how to create your own if you don't have an affiliation with perhaps, or perhaps you do. You know, maybe it's the Shema prayer in Judaism or some other prayer in another faith. But how does one recognize a good mantra for themselves? I, I have to laugh. I always think of that Woody Allen film where the guy gets on the phone and he calls the institute and he goes, I forgot my mantra. <laughs> I think it was Annie Hall. <laughs> well, you're, you're correct. Every tradition has a mantra. So as you correctly mentioned in Judaism, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. That is a mantra. Uh, in Christianity, just the name of Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is a mantra. Uh, in Hinduism, Rama, Rama. Uh, in Islam, Allah, Allah. Uh, in Buddhism, Om Mani Padme Hum. So, in the Heart and Science of Yoga, there there are lists from all great world religions, and uh, people are encouraged to uh, to use one. And uh, if your practice deepens uh, and you want to uh, discuss uh, with me, you can reach me at AmericanMeditation.org. Wonderful. www.americanmeditation.org. The other thing you make very clear is that, you know, when we start to quiet the mind and when we sort of open ourselves to, as you point out, this higher wisdom, that then we come into rapport with the universe, constantly giving us signals and clues and helping guide us as we unfold our lives. And I thought your story about the whitest horse is a really beautiful, I love the story, by the way. I'm just finishing a book on the white spirit animal, so I was drawn to it for other reasons. But it's just a wonderful demonstration of what happens when we get quiet enough to see the connections between things that are happening in our lives. Yes, well, uh, that was a, uh, a very important uh, 
experience that uh, both Janice and I had. Uh, we were uh, asked to uh, uh, attend the final public teaching of, of our teacher, Swami Rama of the Himalayas, uh, in India, in Rishikesh. And uh, it was an expensive trip, and we didn't have a whole lot of money uh, for that type of expenditure. Uh, and we... You know, we deliberated on it uh, for, for quite a while, and uh, our teacher was going to teach a scripture, an ancient scripture, called the Shwedashvatara Upanishad. Upanishads are ancient scriptures that, that teach aspects of yoga science, and the Shwedashvatara Upanishad, roughly translated into English, means the whitest horse. A white horse uh, in yogic uh, story and uh, teaching represents an individual human being who has purified his or her personality and unconscious mind so that all there is is, is this whiteness, this clarity, this perfection. So we had to uh, uh, deliberate whether we were going to go, whether we were going to pay this money or not to pay this money. And uh, uh, the, the day came, we had to uh, make uh, a reservation or we had to... Uh, say thank you, but no thank you, and uh, we both woke up that morning, and we both had agreed that, uh, yes, in fact, we were going to go, and uh, we wrote a check, put it into the mail, and we were quiet. We were with our mantra throughout the day because we knew that the unconscious mind might begin some guerrilla warfare to undermine our resolve, and at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I got a, a telephone call. My wife uh, happens to be a painter. She, uh, uh, at that time, uh, was painting primarily thoroughbred racehorses, portraits. And uh, I received a call from a longtime client, uh, Don Disney, from uh, Florida. And he was uh, calling to commission a painting of, uh, of a horse that we were familiar with uh, by the name of Runaway Groom. We were familiar with him because uh, we actually saw this horse uh, win the Traverse Stakes uh, uh, in Saratoga one August. And he was telling me all the uh, normal things about uh, where the horse was stabled and, uh, and what was the name of the, uh, uh, the manager, the farm manager there, and the telephone number, and when we could uh, see the horse and have Janice photograph and, and sketch him. And I said, well, would you like to speak with Janice? And he said, no, that's not necessary. I've, uh, I have quite a few of her uh, works, and uh, I know that she's a great artist. Uh, but you, you, you could uh, offer uh, this thought to her. He said, I've been, in the, uh, I've been in the thoroughbred business for now for over 20 years. He said, you tell Janice that in all my years, this horse is the whitest horse I've ever seen. And the, it was amazing because the amount of the commission to the exact penny was the amount of the check that we had written in the morning. And so I uh, uh, left my office. I went across the hall to Genesis Art Studio, and I said, uh, this is an amazing situation. We wrote this check for it was around $5,000 this morning, and now I just got off the phone with Don Disney, and he's, uh, and he's offering a commission to you to uh, paint uh, a portrait of runaway groom, and he just wants you to know that this is the whitest horse he's ever seen. And so this commission 
to paint a picture of the whitest horse, in effect, to the penny, paid for our journey to India to study the whitest horse scripture with our teacher. Can't make this stuff up. No, just a beautiful story. But and it is true, though. This this is available to us all of the time when things when we when we learn to pay attention and we get yeah. quiet enough to notice. You know, it's it's not just enough to have the intention to be aware. You really have to pay attention and then make note of these things that seem like hmm synchronicities that really have an explanation in what you originally said, which is that all things are one. Now, you have a beautiful outline, and we're not going to be able to do the whole thing um, about meditation itself, but maybe we could begin the discussion. We will have to take another break, but you have a, a wonderful way of describing to a listener how to practice meditation. Well, meditation is a, is a marvelous practice, a marvelous practice, and it really... Uh, requires that uh, you do a little systematic procedure prior. The last thing we want to do is to, uh, you know, rush home uh, uh, from work and uh, prepare food and uh, do a little cleaning and uh, uh, send a couple of uh, emails and uh, put the kids to bed and, and then sit down uh, for a few minutes to, to meditate. You see, the, the mind is racing at 100 miles an hour. It's been racing at 100 miles an hour all day long. And so we need some systematic procedure to quiet the mind and still the mind, uh, relax the body. And so that's, that's part of the genius of uh, classical yoga science, where we, we do some easy, gentle yoga. Uh, we then uh, do some diaphragmatic breathing practices. The breath is the physical manifestation of the mind. We, we know that when the, the mind is uh, upset... The breath is, is upset. It's filled with jerks and pauses. Uh, but we don't. What we don't really know uh, that well is the fact that if if I can calm the mind, if I can calm, excuse me, if I can calm the breath, it automatically calms the mind. So we use the breathing practice to still the mind. So then the mind is ready to accept just one object and one object alone, and. That is the mantra. But, you know, when you sit and, and you close off the avenues through which stimulation comes into our consciousness, namely the, the senses, or in meditation we don't look and we don't smell and we don't taste and, and uh, we don't listen and we don't touch, that's a lot of stimulation that's uh, not getting into our awareness. And the truth be known, the mind is addicted to stimulation. So in our meditation practice, we learn that we need to honor and witness any competing thought, any competing image, any competing sound, and then bring our attention back to the mantra, bring it back to the mantra. And so that's what happens. And through that process, we are creating skill. We are creating the skill of one-pointed attention. We are creating a space between stimulus and response, so we are learning to be detached. We are also learning how to access our discriminative faculty, our buddy, the conscience. And in the process, we are expanding our willpower. 
So these tools that we gain in meditation, one-pointed attention, detachment, discrimination, and willpower, can then be used in any and every relationship to bring about a rewarding outcome. If you're just joining us, Leonard Perlmutter is our guest. His book, The Heart and Science of Yoga, learn more at www.americanmeditation.org, and you'll see there are classes, programs, downloads, and other things available for purchase, as well as opportunities to learn more when they travel or you travel to them. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Carol McMakin. I developed frequency-specific microcurrent. I'm the author of Frequency-Specific Microcurrent in Pain Management that will tell you how to use specific frequencies to help heal nerve pain, disc injuries, muscle pain, brain injuries. And my new book is The Resonance Effect. You can learn more about Frequency-Specific Microcurrent at www.frequencyspecific.com. And you are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zoe Hieronymus. Coming back to the issue of the known benefits of meditation, I think radio is a really great place if you'll describe one of your sample one-minute meditations, which really shows us that a focused mind, if only for a short spurt, can really help us in immeasurable ways. Yes, and uh, really, it doesn't even have to be for a full minute. Even when you're in a crowded uh, meeting, if you... Just bring your attention to the breath at the bridge between the two nostrils where the nostrils meet the upper lip and give your full attention to the inhalation and then to the exhalation. You can actually feel the air going in and and the air coming out. That's a wonderful focal point to focus your attention. So if you're able to relegate uh, 60 seconds, just sit in a comfortable uh, chair Uh, with a straight back, and then arrange the body in a comfortable posture that's stable with your head, neck, and trunk straight. And then I'd like to uh, recommend that uh, you use something called the finger lock where the thumb and the index finger join together on on each of your hands. And we're familiar with that uh, uh, position because that's the okay sign. And really all that does is it completes the electrical circuit in the body to keep all that energy inside. And you can place, once, once the thumb and index finger is, is joined, are joined together, you can place your palm on your thighs and your eyes are gently closed and you bring your attention to the breath between the two nostrils and you attend to the inhalation and the exhalation, the inhalation and the exhalation, for just 60 seconds. Definitely calming. Yeah. In that process, if there's any thoughts, images, or sounds that come, it's not a problem. You simply acknowledge the habit of the mind. You honor, you witness any competing thought, image, or sound. You willingly sacrifice it. You let it go to any form of G-O-D that you're familiar with or Offer it back to the universe, to the Divine Mother, whatever you're familiar with and comfortable with, and then redirect the mind back to the breath at the bridge between the two nostrils. So when we combine what is referred to as pranayama, or the science of breath, and meditation, 
share with us what we know now scientifically are the benefits when these two holy arts are combined. Well, it's very interesting on many different levels. But if every baby that is born is born breathing diaphragmatically, where with each inhalation the belly swells and with each exhalation the belly contracts gently. But because of the anxiety and the stress that we are under and, and that we experience, because we have forgotten who we are, that we're essentially spiritual beings having a human experience, we begin breathing uh, from the chest. So the, the breath is not full, it's not even. And ideally, what wants to happen is that when I am breathing diaphragmatically, as I did when I was a baby, the belly will swell and then contract. And with each swelling, the diaphragm, which is at the base of the abdominal cavity, which is normally in the rest state in the shape of an umbrella, when we inhale and the belly swells, that umbrella shape goes flat like a pancake. And then when we, when we exhale, it goes back to the dome shape or the umbrella shape. And every time we inhale, it flattens. Every time we exhale, it rises again. Now, what's really interesting is from the brainstem, the longest nerve in the system called the vagus nerve wanders through the thoracic cavity and through the abdominal cavity and goes right through the diaphragm. If we're chest breathers, that sends a message to the amygdala and the hippocampus in the brainstem that there's some threat. And that causes a cascade of hormones to tumble into the, our entire physiology, bringing about the fight, flight, or freeze reaction because we are under stress. And it doesn't even have to be a real threat. It can be simply a perceived threat. Right? You know what Shakespeare says, there's nothing good or bad, it's just thinking makes it so. And yet, if I can breathe diaphragmatically, reestablish that diaphragmatic breath through my breathing practices, where the belly swells and the belly contracts and the diaphragm goes down and then back up, down and then back up, where the vagus nerve goes in and through the diaphragm, as the diaphragm rises and falls, it massages the vagus nerve, it stimulates the vagus nerve, and that sends very wonderful messages back up to the brainstem, back up to the amygdala, back up to the hippocampus, that the danger is no longer. And that can turn off the cascade of hormones. But in our culture, where fear is... is it's an epidemic. We're so fearful about everything. We even, you know, for a couple of minutes, we turn on the television for a little relaxation, and we hear the news broadcaster say, okay, well, uh, we're going to take a station identification right now, but come back, and we'll tell you about a disease that you might never have heard of, but you probably already have it. So the, the, the media encourages this fear because fear cells. But we don't have to necessarily uh, be enslaved to that if we can 
work on the breath and calm the breath, breathing diaphragmatically, just like when we were children, we can automatically calm the mind. And now a, a calmed mind can create a space between stimulus and response in real life to then use that bridge of yoga to base outer action on inner wisdom and bring about consequences that can enable us to fulfill the purpose of our lives without pain, misery, or bondage. There are so many. It's beautifully said. Thank you so much, Leonard. You know, in, in your book, you talk about the doshas. I don't think we're really going to have to time to do that um, clearly. But I do think it's important, if you wouldn't mind, to talk about what it means. One often hears the Eastern expression of giving up attachments. Buddhism will talk about giving up attachments. And it, it's very confusing in general as to what is really meant by that. Well, uh, Ayurveda... Uh, is, is a wonderful sister science to yoga. It's been very practical uh, for me. Even before I knew anything about yoga, uh, I was drawn to uh, Ayurveda uh, just to take care of my body. Every body, every form in the universe is comprised of the five essential elements, space, air, fire, water, and earth, in different, in different amounts, different balance. And the... The theory is that uh, we are born with a certain balance, and if we can keep that balance that we were born with, the body will seek the best health that it has the potential to experience. However, if we uh, uh, change that balance, and how do we change it? Well, uh, the motivating factor for changing the balance is desire. So it's about lifestyle choice. Uh, and even even the medical community uh, says uh, that a, a great preponderance of uh, a disease is caused by lifestyle choice. So if if I desire something, if I if if I create an attachment for certain kinds of food that will imbalance the space, air, fire, water, and earth that I was born with, then when I eat food. The food that I eat is incompletely digested. And the incompletely digested food creates a poison. It's called ama. And the ama has a magnetic attraction to genetic weak links in the body. And that ama, that poison, accumulates and accumulates because I'm imbalancing the balance that I was born with. And at a certain point at that genetic site, with enough accumulation the seeds of disease begin to sprout. That's not really necessary to happen. If you know, Nobody knows our body better than each of us. And you can imagine that if we can work together with our health care providers and instead of uh, encouraging disease by not honoring these types of rhythms, then, then we can maintain uh, a healthful condition. But it's attachment that's the problem. The problem is not the specific food that I'm eating as much as it's my attachment to it. Every once in a while, uh, I'll uh, go out to uh, a very nice, uh, for example, an Italian restaurant, and I, I leave a little extra room for uh, a, a nice dessert, perhaps a tiramisu that happens to be uh, one of my favorites. And I eat it, 
and I have no guilt, uh, but I experience a tiramisu. On the other hand, I don't like it so much, and I don't become attached to it so much that I have to go to that Italian restaurant every day to have uh, my dessert because I'm so needy and I'm so lacking that I'm, that I'm looking for some kind of compensation. So these lifestyle choices, many of the desires that, that imbalance the balance that we're born with comes about because of a sense of lack and a sense of inner conflict. I'm not, I'm not observing this inner conflict. I'm not resolving the inner conflict, so I'm looking for a vacation. The vacation could be going to Vegas. It could be uh, uh, a jelly donut. It could be a little uh, extra sex. It could be more sleep. See, we have lots of options. We could buy a pair of shoes as compensation. But my experience is all of those uh, vacations are always over, and I still have the conflict in my mind. Better to resolve the conflict, and that's why today I don't eat food that I love. I eat food that loves me. I eat food that loves my heart and my liver and my spleen and my pancreas and my eyes and my ears and even food that I didn't like as a child, like lima beans. I have developed a, a, a rich fondness for them because I know that they love me. It's a nice way to put it. We have about a minute left, and I, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the American Meditation Institute and um, what those in our listening audience will find there if they have a desire to come or to participate from a distance. Well, thank you. Uh, we're in upstate New York, American Meditation Institute. We're just east of Albany, New York, and west of Williamstown, Massachusetts, in the foothills of the Berkshire Mountains. It's very lovely, especially in the spring and the summer and the fall and the winter. <laughs> now that you mention it. <laughs> and uh, we, have, uh, we have retreats. We're going to have a retreat in, uh, in July. We have, uh, uh, we have regular courses here every week, uh, and we also have online courses uh, that, and streaming. Every Monday night we have a... Uh, Yoga Psychology, the Yoga Psychology of the Bhagavad Gita that we study every week that folks throughout the country and throughout the world uh, go online in real time and, and can ask questions and receive answers. Uh, we have an online video uh, course that uh, is the video interpretation of the heart and science of yoga. Leonard Perlmuter has been our guest. The American Meditation Institute can be found at www.americanmeditation.org. His book, The Heart and Science of Yoga. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and remember, we do need more love in the world.